Welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena, and today our guest is the founder of Verb, a digital marketing agency for luxury and premium brands, and the co-founder of Lottie, a care home comparison platform with the aim to elevate place of life. In 2020, he was named as a Forbes 30 Under 30 alongside Stephen Butler. He also received recognition for giving his staff the day off when shops and bars reopened after the pandemic and was labelled Britain's best boss. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episodes. We'd love to hear your feedback. Email questions at businessleader.co.uk to get in touch. And now it's time to welcome Chris Donnelly to the podcast. Welcome, Chris. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you very much for having me on. It's a a funny introduction, that, actually. Was it the Britain's best boss bit? Yeah, I mean, quite literally all I actually did was I gave the company the day off to go either shopping or go to the pub or like whatever was important in life. But it it just got run in the mainstream news as like, he's given everyone the day off to go to the pub. And then that, that nickname that has actually stuck with me for ages now, and my friends now take the piss out of that so much. But yeah, it's, uh, it is quite funny. So, I mean, what was your reaction when that kind of came about? Because I guess you laugh at that now, and I guess that was quite a long time ago. But that sort of being attached to your name now, is that something that you enjoy or not really? I think it's funny. It is nice in a sense because I suppose I spent a lot of my business career trying to do things at our company that's, I suppose, really, really good for people. Like I know I've, I've always run pretty decent businesses, but I've always on the side tried to make sure that they were like actually incredible places to work. And that's, you know, like maternity policies or IVF policies or miscarriage policies Like we were always very ahead of the game. And so it was funny that the thing I got named Britain's best boss for was basically letting everyone go for a pint where that was actually for like 10 years, I'd worked on really good things. So it was quite funny that it happened. So I don't really mind it. No, it's, it's, a, it's a good laugh. Leading on from what you've just said, the policies that you've instilled within the businesses that you've created, why is that something that you're passionate about? And what made you realize that you wanted to do something that's quite different to what a lot of businesses are doing? I think like most entrepreneurs, the reason that I work for myself and I did from such a young age is I just didn't have great jobs before. I just didn't have great bosses or great jobs. And I, I certainly didn't have any success in my career as it were. And so I, I always thought about like, why would I run my own company, especially now with Lottie and, and what we're doing for the sector? I've always wanted to do something good, but I suppose it just created an opportunity where I was able to create the place that I would have liked to have worked. I think that's ultimately like a place that leads with quite a lot of empathy. You know, if you're, if you are a, you know, a couple who are really trying to have a a child and you've struggled, then that's the most important thing in your life at the time. It's not being at work and grinding and all the rest of it. Like it's not to say that you're not the person who works really hard, but at that point in your time, you need support. And as an employer to be able to give it, I think that builds an enormous amount of trust and loyalty and so forth. So yeah, no, I've just, I've just thought what would a great place to work be like? Um, And obviously you know, I, I sold Verb in 2021 and I started Lottie in the same year. And so I, I focus all my time now on trying to make sure Lottie is a great place to work. And yeah, I'm having quite a lot of fun designing the new policies. 
I want to focus a little bit on your journey into becoming an entrepreneur and business founder. So can you tell me a little bit about, I guess, your experience growing up because your partner in uh, in business has tended to be your, your brother, Will Donnelly. So what was your experience growing up and how do you think that made you into the business person that you are now? Will and I have very, very different backgrounds and very different journeys to becoming entrepreneurs. It's amazing that we actually work so well together uh, because our journeys have been so, so different. But I think at the beginning, like I was very much into starting millions of different businesses. You know, there's so many cliches involved in my story, but you know, like I would be buying and selling technology. I'd be buying and selling printers and scanners. I built e-commerce websites when I was like 16. I was doing all sorts of things, setting up social media pages. And I think I was just really interested in the idea of running a business. Um, And I was very very excitable about it all. And Will was my my brother and my best friend forever. And so when it came to actually building a business together, it was more, it was more because of he came up with the idea than anything else. Like I was selling Verb, which I'd run for 10 years, and I was actually planning on taking some time off. And then Will came to me and said, you know, we've had all these family problems with care, which you know a lot of people know. And he said, I think this is part of the solution to how we fix this problem. And he kind of was saying, will you come with me on this journey? And I remember being like, oh my God, I love the idea. I love the mission. I love the vision. But I was like, can I do another, you know, can I go straight into another startup? And like 24 hours later, I called him and I said, yeah, I'm game to do it. I love it. <laughs> you know, I need to make sure I take some holiday, but yeah, I, I, I'm down to do it with you, man. So I think it's so different because with Verb, I set it up pretty much on my own, I had a business partner who joined a bit later and who became very much like a co-founder. But with with Lottie, you know, it was Will's idea. He brought me along and I've just been helping him realize the vision of, of Lottie. And obviously over time, I've added more and more to it. But I think the difference fundamentally now is for 10 years, I helped businesses grow and deliver and become like leading in their fields. Whereas now the thing that kind of propels us is the work that we're doing is actually making people experience better care and a better later life, which is quite a compelling mission. Even if you have been an entrepreneur for a while, it's a very compelling thing to get out of bed for. You mentioned sort of what inspired you to create Lottie was your own personal experience, which, you know, is the driving force behind it. What was that experience and what then led you to starting to craft and build the groundwork of Lottie? There's a few things across our grandparents. I won't be like too specific or too uh, gruesome, I suppose. But we had one grandma who went into a home and didn't have a particularly good experience on my dad's side and moved around a bit seeking a better experience. But, you know, so many old people have dementia. And so as as a result, it's very hard to find out exactly what's going on. And then my mum's father was quite an ill man for quite a long time, had home care, And there was always, you know, is it good? Is it not good? And then my grandma was so scared to go into a care home, even though she needed to, that we had these three sort of very unique experiences of of relatively like poor outcomes. And we sort of said to ourselves, well, what does great look like? And great looks like, you know, someone who's not lonely as they age, someone who's got lots of people around them, someone who can have their medical needs taken care of and some way for us to almost guarantee the quality of care. And that's that's the point. The whole point with Lottie is you can't come onto the platform unless we're objectively taking a view that your quality of care is good enough. 
And so that that was the whole point for us. It was, you know, our families experienced relatively poor care and also Will, you know, had worked in social care on the property side for a long time. And so he had a very, very good idea of how it all worked. So it all kind of came together in a in a sort of perfect moment, perfect storm, as it were. It must be quite difficult to sort of vet out the care homes or like perform potentially the due diligence around making sure that these care homes are fit enough to be on the platform in the first place how have you navigated kind of running those checks and really making sure that the care homes aren't just paying lip service there's a variety of ways the first way is when we launched and we launched with 100 homes my brother had pretty much visited every single one of those homes because of his previous job and so had a very good indication of the quality of the businesses the quality of the brand the quality of consistency and that's what we launched with. So we we initially put together something called the Lottie Score, which currently is not public, but at some point in the future, we will make it public so that I suppose people can start to tell the difference between you know, great care and excellent care, for example. So the first thing we do is obviously CQC score is a useful indication. So that's a government sort of regulated uh, score. And we'll use that as one of the indicators. We'll also use all the different review sites out there to take a, a review on aggregate from all the different sites of what people have said about them. We obviously do conduct visits to the homes themselves and we have a checklist to go through when we do visit the homes. The next step is obviously we then review every single person that we place into a home and then we review their family and their experience of the home as well. And so the culmination of all those things forms, and a few other criteria, form the Lottie score. And it's only via the Lottie score and that list that you're actually allowed onto the platform. And so what we've created in a weird sense is this platform where all the care homes want to be on it because we're now, well, it's the fastest growing site in the industry. It's the second most viewed site in the industry. And so there's there's a natural pressure, I suppose, to want to be on it. But also we've had big arguments with care providers about not letting on certain parts of their portfolios because of the quality. So we might let on 60, 70% of a portfolio and say that the ones that require improvement or the ones that, you know, our view dictates that they should be slightly better in certain areas, we won't let those on. So it's a sort of a, a working progress at the moment. But so far, we've only had a handful of people move out of the homes we've put them into. And that tends to be for higher acuity needs. Whereas in reality, people move out of care homes all the time because of bad experiences. So I think it's 44% of people regret their care home decision. And we've only had, I think it's like five people move out and we've placed, you know, come on to a thousand people. So Lottie is, is now valued at 45 million pounds and it was only created or you only founded it at the beginning of 2021. You guys have scaled at a very rapid pace. So I'm wondering, do you have any advice for our listeners on how they can scale their business or is there a secret to scaling quickly? Well, it's always a good question. Do you want to scale quickly? Like, do you, do you want to run a big business and a fast growing business? It's not always for everyone is what I'd say. And like, I built Verb over 10 years and it became one of the leading agencies in, in luxury. And I don't know how many people there were at the end, but high 80s, you know, so it's a decent sized business. The difference, I suppose, is with Lottie, we've tapped into something that's obviously not been tapped into before. And... Because of Will's unique skill set in understanding social care and mine in, I suppose, understanding, you know, how to use digital to grow businesses very quickly, it's kind of the perfect mix of skill sets. And then we were very lucky early on that someone called James Payne joined us, who had been the first employee or third person at the company at a couple of 
hundred million slash billion pound businesses. And so the combination of the three of us was quite perfect in that we understood you needed to build in a certain way for scale. We understood how to hire people at scale. We understood how social care worked at scale. And so from the very beginning, it was never about creating a small company. It was about being incredibly intentional about we want to change how social care works. And we believe that we can change how social care works. So day one, it wasn't about like selling a t-shirt or wasn't about like, you know, capitalizing on crypto or anything like that. It was literally about, we want to change the standard of care. And then we want to use technology to improve the resident and the individual experience as they, they age in later life. And that's, you know, our mission is to elevate later life. And I think that is by its very nature, enormous. And so I almost think if we're going to come close to the realization of our, you know, founding beliefs, then we have to go fast. We have to go quite big. We were lucky that, you know, most startups don't generate revenue early on, whereas we were lucky enough that our assumptions were right and that we had product market fit quite literally in the first few weeks. We placed people and made revenue. We did buy another business uh, recently, and that's now formed the foundations of our, our SaaS and technology business so it's been wild. I mean, we've been very intentional about growth. We obviously raised money and we've generated revenue from day one. So it's a combination of those things. But I sometimes sit with Will. You know, I think we've we've just put out 25 more jobs. We feel like this, the speed of, at which we're growing will probably increase rather than decrease over the next year or so. And we sit there and think like, how is this happening? But then if we look back at the you know, one page we wrote together in 2020, we are basically on track with that plan, which is quite scary and also gives you a bit of confidence that, you know, we both clearly know our, our sector expertise, I suppose. You recently acquired another, another company found, which you mentioned there. Within this process of, of acquiring the company, were there many challenges that you faced that you potentially didn't realise that you would? So... Again, quite lucky in that I've been through acquiring companies before. So I've made two acquisitions before in my in my life. I've also then uh, I've done a private equity funding before, and I've I obviously sold Verb, and so like I've had a really good amount of experience in I suppose the M and A field. Like it wasn't a new thing to me. It was something I was quite comfortable with, and obviously Will's previous role had been very M&A focused as well. So we made the decision that we didn't want to launch our own. We wanted to buy a successful business that was in the CRM and occupancy space so that we could take our, I suppose, introduction and quality product that we have in the marketplace and move it into resident experience and improving the day-to-day. And so we then looked at all of the different uh, businesses in the market and then just approached them cold ourselves. We didn't use brokers or anything. And we met uh, Dan Morris, who founded Found, and he had built an amazing business. Like the the product really does, you know, really does improve the day-to-day operations of homes. And one of the pieces of research that that they had done and we've we've recently uh, redone on a bigger scale is how inquiries are currently working, like how people are getting hold of care homes, how they're being served and so forth. Because as we all know, or we tend to try and ignore, most of our hospitals are full of elderly people waiting to be discharged into hospitals, but there aren't enough beds. And so one of the things that we we saw was like 68% of care inquiries aren't responded to by care homes. And I think it's something like 92% or 90% aren't responded to within seven days. And I think that the thing that's stark about that is most people who are wanting to go into a care home are going in because they've had a fall or they've become suddenly ill 
or they're being discharged from hospital. And so if you're not getting a response from these homes, you might have to go home to somewhere that you're not taken care of, basically. So um, so for us, yeah, it was about, I think, closing up that digital loop, becoming the company that helped them receive inquiries, but also help them to plan their forecasts and plan their occupancy and start to build tools that improve the, the day-to-day of the care home. And obviously, Lottie has become quite famous quite quickly. And that's really helped us in, I suppose, scaling of our other products and our other um, service lines because everyone just seems to know Lottie and that and that serves in introducing you to our other other businesses, I suppose. And in that process of acquisition, many of our listeners will be potentially going through a similar experience. So do you have any advice for going through that process? Absolutely. Um, make sure you really know what it is that you want to buy. I've seen lots of people do acquisitions for many different reasons. And in the end, actually would have been faster to build it themselves. You know, you're you're buying someone else's processes, you're buying someone else's habits because of that's how they would have created their contracts. You're buying everything to do with a team that's totally not you and wasn't built by you and doesn't have the same culture as you. And so when I bought a business previously at Verb, we bought another agency, their culture was so incredibly different to ours that it took six months to even get a handle of where the business was. We lost clients immediately. We lost team members immediately. And when you look back, in some, it might have just been a good deal, but it was the most stressful two years ever to try and integrate it. And I sometimes think if we had just put some of the money that we were thinking about into the acquisition into really, really well thought out growth strategies, maybe that would have been a better move for the business because broadly, the advice is it takes twice as long as you ever think it will, no matter how good you think you are or how prepared you think you are for an acquisition, it will take twice as long. And it will often end up costing more than you thought it would. And then the things that people sell their business on are normally the the future view and the future growth of the business. So I tend to try and only ever consider buying a business on on its EBITDA. And in this situation, we were able to buy with Found, a very unique business because it was built by an agency and run by an agency. And so they had a team who worked on two products. So we were able to buy a product without a team, which meant that the integration was actually about getting our team integrated and set up on their product. So actually, it came with very few complications because they had a SaaS business model, retained revenue, contracted long-term revenue. They had a great pipeline of people wanting the product. They didn't have a sales team. They didn't have a marketing team. They just had one developer who joined Lottie and that was it. And that's why it was a complicated acquisition because it's a decent sized business, but it was a very easy one from a cultural perspective. So I would just make sure that you consider more than just the money. And if you are buying it for the future, make sure it's like very complimentary. I think found was a very complimentary purchase for us. And I'm sure that in the future, we probably will do more acquisitions. And again, we'll try and go with the same strategy that it's incredibly complimentary. So actually when thinking about acquisition, it can be just as important as, you know, thinking about the money aspect of it too. And actually it can end up taking a longer time if, if you are thinking just about the money. Absolutely. I mean, if you're, if you're a people business and most, most businesses are, but if you're a service business, for example, which, you know, is a great majority of our businesses in the UK are service businesses, then your entire product is your people. And so like, it might be as small as your team work from, 8.30 to 6 and you very rarely ever have, 
you know, lots of sick days. You very rarely ever have people leaving early or ever having problems because your culture is strong. Everyone trusts the business. You know, you've got a really good cultural understanding of what you're trying to do on that journey. And they've been with you for a few years. If you then clash that with another culture that has very high sick days, has very high turnover, people come in at very different times, like your team will suffer because of that comparative nature within the office immediately. And their team might improve because of it. But again, it creates, it almost creates two different cultures within one. And in the end for us, I don't know if it was a good cultural decision not to put more time into that. We just assumed that people would like get together and work really well, but they, they didn't actually, to be honest with you. So, um, so yeah, I'd just be aware that the culture is, you know, often it's often the business it's often the team. It's definitely the people who do the work and therefore it's the revenue. So the last thing you want is to buy a company, misunderstand the culture and then suffer from it, you know, months or years later. That's really good advice. And I, I know our listeners who are going through acquiring a business will really find that very useful. And culture is something that, you know, I see on LinkedIn, you post about quite a lot. And it's something that I know that you work quite hard to cultivate within Lottie. What advice would you give to business leaders and entrepreneurs about cultivating the culture that they want within their business? What kind of things do you do that cultivate the culture that you want? I do post about it quite a lot. I think one of the first posts I ever did that actually went really viral was something that I've said for forever. And I just managed to one day write it down and it did well, which was something like free beers solve fuck all, I think is what I said. And I think that there's so much behind that, which is like most businesses think that culture is going for a beer on Friday night, beanbags in the office and like all the stuff that Google and Facebook kind of coined over the last 10 years is like cultural stuff. But actually, like, I think for me, it was always like, what are the, what are the things that are actually going to improve people's lives? And we spoke a little bit about it earlier, but it's anything from like good pension to good working hours to good flexibility. You know, my business has always had a good level of work from home pre the pandemic. But I think even now we only ask people to come in twice a week. And then if if they're struggling with that, we're always really flexible to change up the days or go down to one day a week. And I think this is it. Because people tell me I'm crazy all the time. But like, if you let people design their life alongside designing their work, then they will be incredibly happy. But I'm able to stand on a stage and say to our team, like, we are changing people's lives. We're all here for that purpose. You know, let's build the best company we possibly can for ourselves. But always, always have an eye on the fact that this is, this is not really about us. It's about the idea that in five years time, when we consider and review our careers, we will be the team that changed the later living sector. You know, we will be those people. And that's quite a thing to aim for. And so I think with Lossie, we've managed to capture what is like very competitive, fast paced group of very smart people who also in, inside have that desire to you know, work for something good. And I think most people who apply basically have had a personal experience and they're very interested in tech for good. And Lottie just aligns with them. But I'd say even Verb became relatively well-known and, and quite famous in the end for being a company that spoke very personally and publicly about making sure that people were taken care of. And like most agencies don't have that much of a USP. And in a weird way, we had a USP in that we worked in luxury. But I think the thing that we were known most for was actually being a great place to work, was actually being a company that had great policies. Like I remember we... <laughs> We were petitioning the government about the miscarriage leave. We were petitioning the government about 
other cultural things that that should be changed. And so we just got a bit, bit of a name for ourselves for being a bit outspoken on how you can intentionally build a great culture. And we spoke about it a little bit earlier, but yeah, a big part of the culture that you've cultivated is thinking about what your employees actually want and what benefits their lives. And a part of that has been you letting people have the day off when society opened up, you know, Britain's best boss. Have you experienced much backlash or kind of negative reaction from maybe other business owners or entrepreneurs as a result of this? Or has the reception been predominantly positive? Uh, I mean, it varies. Like, I have certainly received my fair share of negative comments. And that's anything from, like, typically slightly older business owners just being like, you don't understand how the world works. Like, that's not how management works. Or Verb or Lottie aren't successful enough for you to be so outspoken on these topics. So I get a lot of that from, like, typically older agency owners. Not exclusively, but quite a lot. Uh, and again, I don't mind it. Like I don't do it for them, so I don't mind it. You know, I, I will, I will keep building businesses. I think probably for the rest of my life, and I will keep trying to make sure that people are are happy and taken care of in our businesses. And I don't really care about the backlash. With Lottie, the the feedback's been relatively unanimously. I'd say actually no, more relatively good. Like obviously, we made the national headlines a couple of times with like when we launched and a few other times since launching. And you will see people calling you out for basically just trying to make loads of money and doing it behind a good mission. But I suppose in that situation, you can't win. So, you know, I think for us, our view has always been, we've never hidden the fact that we're entrepreneurs and we're building a commercially viable business and we're not building a charity and and all the rest of it. So I think we're just going to continue to be very honest about you know, it is a business, it is being built like a business, but the outcomes of this business are to improve life for people. And I think that the backlash that you receive on a day-to-day basis, it doesn't actually bother me, to be honest with you. So I think I think it's okay in, in the long run. I think I think if you're newer to it, it's harder, but because I've done it for a while now, it's okay. I want to kind of come back to your beginnings a little bit of you growing your first business. We've spoken about it a little bit, but Verb was one of your first businesses that you founded and you sold it in 2021. But where do you think you got the motivation to kind of grow that business in the first place? So I've always felt like I'm quite incredibly lucky. My my dad worked for himself and ran like a successful lifestyle business for 20 odd years. And as a result, I think that I grew up with the knowledge that you could work for yourself and it could work. I always loved the fact that my dad could come and watch me play sport and never missed a game ever and ran a business of 20 people. I thought that was just like the most amazing thing ever. And most people's parents weren't at all the games. So it was quite like a, it was quite a feat. And then my older brother became an entrepreneur really quite early on in his life. And like, he's, been involved in countless businesses over the years, but he probably ended up being the the biggest and greatest inspiration of my life because we were two years apart. We had a dad that worked for themselves. My older brother had decided years previously he wasn't going to have a job. Maybe he couldn't have a job, who knows? But he sort of had this situation where he already knew he was going to do it. And so again, for me to form the belief that it was fine, was quite easy actually, to be honest with you. And then I started my first business with my older brother before Verb, and it was called The Real University Guide. And it was to help students uh, find university and not have to travel to all the universities. But it also gave you a slight take. So 
it wouldn't just be about the academics. It would show you all the nightlife. It would show you the cost of a pint, for example. It would show you like all this like fun stuff. And I suppose in a similar way to the rest, it took off at the beginning. Like it actually got really, really big traction in terms of viewership. And we had some sponsorship from companies. We raised investment. Yeah. So I think, you know, from, from 16 to 19, I was buying and selling things online um, and just sort of dabbling, I suppose, from, from 19 to sort of 21, I built the real uni guide, which uh, in the end we had to shut down <laughs> because we got a few of the assumptions wrong. It basically ran out of money. I think if I was to run it now, I might be able to have a good go at it. No one actually did it. It's not a bad idea. Um, but I don't think we knew what we know now. And so shut that down. And then because we had got ourselves into a bit of debt, I started building websites to try and get myself out of the debt when I was at university and building websites led from building websites for local shops into building websites for luxury brands, which led to Verb. And then as the years went on, that concept of supporting luxury brands, which was something I was very interested in at the time and very sort of, I suppose, aspirational too at the time, um, just carried on. And, you know, three or four years out of university, we, you know, Verb was like, 25 people it was you know making millions of pounds a year we were working with some of the biggest brands in the world we only ever raised money once to buy a business partner out so we actually did it very organically which was quite quite a feat to to do that so i put 400 pounds in 2012 and then we never took any money into the business outside of that until about 2017 to buy out a business partner so it was quite a feat and i think i don't really i'm glad you asked about it because i don't really talk about it very much anymore because people ask so much about lottie but it was a real grind i never say people should do this but we ben askins and i who um, is my business partner uh from verb we did work crazy hours i mean we would be in the office every night till one we worked weekends you know, it was brutal what we put ourselves through. But I think you put your head up for air a bit when you're sort of, we just started that at 21, sold it at sort of 30. And you think to yourself, wow, I mean, you know, we've, we've built our careers, we've built our financial stability, we, the world is, you know, at our feet, really, in terms of what we what we can go on and do. So yeah, I mean, it was it was an amazing experience, the verb years. An impressive part of that story is what you mentioned, you know, you initially investing £400 and then growing the business from there. And you have a similar story with Lottie and the investment that you've been able to get um, over the years with Lottie from some pretty big names like Zoopla and the Facebook director, Caroline Hudak and the Monzo founder, for example. Do you have any advice for our listeners about kind of investment and what do you think is the secret to achieving investment from big names or achieving investment that you want, essentially? I think Lottie has been quite blessed, if I'm totally honest with you. Like I've since left, but I've been part of other fast growing startups in the last year or so. And I left to just focus on Lottie as it exploded. But I think the honest truth is actually about acknowledging that even though your idea is great to you and even though the idea sounds amazing to you and your family and your friends, the reality is you're still probably 1% chance, which means for an investor, that's a hard ask. I mean, if it's pre-launch, that is a seriously hard ask for an investor to put their hard-earned money into it. The reality is that at the beginning, you just need to accept that it is a bit of a numbers game 
and that you you need to have your story very straight in terms of how you will make money and make money quickly. And then you've got to do the desktop research. Like I meet people quite often who say like, I'm really struggling for funding. And I'll say, how many people have you spoken to? And they'll say 30. And I'll say, well, how long have you been doing this? And they'll be like, you know, two years. And I'm like, well, that's 700 days or something, 650 days. And you've only spoken to 30 people. I'd be like, you really, really need to get out there and network more, reach out to people more. And I think that what's interesting about the investor journey, as it is with the customer journey, is you learn every single meeting something. You learn what they liked hearing, what they didn't like hearing, what should be in the deck or shouldn't be in the deck, how financial plans should look. And I think that by a process of elimination, you teach yourself to be very good at a specific skill, which is fundraising. And I think people just assume that that just like happens and that, you know, you just have a chance moment, a meeting in time. But I run the fundraising for Lottie. And yeah, I mean, we've had a blessed life. Like we, I think we raised a 5 million valuation pre-launch, maybe in the idea stage. And that's helped by the fact that I'm a second time founder who's had an exit and that Will's a product, you know, a sort of sector specialist and those things definitely help. But Again, it's about creating and curating a story for investment. It's about, you know, if you can land some good angels, then they give you clout. You know, they give you that thing that will then get other investors to be like, okay, well, if someone says put in the money, that's a real sign of confidence. And I think that you've just got to be really, really honest about it's a building block stage. Like we, we always knew with our seed round we wanted to do a seed round very early on. We wanted to give ourselves the funding to not have to slow down at any point because we made revenue, but we wanted to make sure we had the sort of the, the chest as it were to go after our mission at the pace we wanted. But we knew that very early on, we weren't going to get the money we wanted because without giving up too much equity, which again is always a balance. So we actually did, we did funding quite regularly throughout the first year rather than doing like big, big chunky ones. And then when we got to our seed, we had the proof to say these you know this is the viewership on the website this is the revenue made and then here is the future this is the big dream big idea big mission big change the world stuff but also here's the fact that we've executed incredibly well for 12 months so it's it's a blend i mean i, I i'm very unforgiving of people when they say they can't raise money and they clearly haven't done the legwork but as well you need to you need to get an investor to buy into the dream as much as anything so I would practice your speech. I used to offer this to people. I can't anymore because I'm too busy, but I used to offer people to pitch their idea to me just for feedback because you know you don't have long to impress someone, especially someone impressed. So Tom Blomfield was one of our first investors and was so monumental to the development of the company. He was the best investor ever. He's such a nice guy. You know, my first meeting with him, like he grilled me for two hours on the idea. And then unprompted he then sent me a, like a two-page breakdown of the idea the market the sector how it's going to work assumptions criticisms and then he said i need to meet will grilled will and, and and decided that he would he would come in as one of the first one of the first angels so it was it was i suppose lucky but also i'd reached out to about 300 tom Bumfields at this point it's interesting to hear you describe fundraising as this kind of muscle that needs to be sort of exercised and when you're first starting out, actually, you won't necessarily be good at fundraising off the bat. And the more that you do it, you get better at it. Yeah, I think that's a that's an interesting and refreshing kind of insight to have that actually you can get better at fundraising over time. 
as a piece of advice, it has to be given because it's never, ever given. People never tell you that at the start. And like as a skill set, and I think as you say, as a muscle, if you want to build any business, like the type of scale and scope that Lottie is going for, you need to be phenomenal at fundraising, you know, because in the early days, it'll be the thing that defines you because I'm a big believer in only running good profitable businesses like I did previously. But if the goal is so big and you want to move at a pace which doesn't allow competitors or other businesses to sort of take away parts, you choose to go fundraising and so much of it's down to you. And I, I can guarantee you, like I met with, I probably spoke to about 50 VCs, but I, I, I met with 20 VCs on Zoom calls or in person. And in the first five minutes, they know and you know whether the conversation's going any further. And then it's just like, if it's not, it's just pizza pasta for like 10 more minutes. And then they're like, okay, we'll come back to you. Really nice to meet you though. And you just know. And I think that that again is about training your muscle training yourself to be able to sell the story and the mission and the pace and the team to make sure that you can convince them of this future. Because there are great companies that have existed over time. Absolutely. Airbnb, for example, I love. Like Airbnb were excellent at fundraising later on in their journey. They were quite, quite average at the start, but then they learned and trained themselves to be great at it. And it became, you know, having that capital available became defining for them later. So you just got to be very, very clear about a lot of it's capital allocation. And if you can show you're good at that, then raising money again is a lot easier. Yeah, that's really good advice. Thanks, Chris. A big part of every entrepreneur's journey is the challenges that they face. What has been your biggest challenge that you've faced so far, do you think? Um, I mean, there's never, there's never just one, if I'm totally honest with you. And I have I feel like I've been an entrepreneur forever now, which I know some people have been entrepreneurs much longer, but I think in the way that I've chosen to chart my life, which is basically go one business to the next business without a day off since I was about 16, you do get to a certain point where you're tired and, you, and you're, you're very under pressure and you're continuously under pressure for a long period of time. And I think that I think there was a period of my career where I probably had a bit of an internal snap moment where you know you get huge anxiety you sort of you know you struggle with your sleep you turn to you know drinking a bit more and all that sort of stuff and i think that in my later 20s i was very poor at managing like my own my own health i suppose and and you know, my own outlook on things and was at times you know very upset whereas i think now and it's even harder now because you know i'm 31 so all of my friends are getting married everyone's getting engaged. There's a million different life events that are so important to go to because you never want to isolate yourself through your work. So you want to keep all the great friends you have and never let them down. So it's hard because there's there's a massive requirement. So actually, I have become so much better at pacing myself. And even though I will commit to a lot, I will make sure that I'm always conscious of my own energy levels or anxiety levels or you know, if I'm going to go to an evening out, do I need to stay for the whole thing? If I'm like, maybe I should just take the weekend off, even if I'm really tired. Um, You know, there's lots of like small things that I I plan. And then now I have a commitment to pretty much exercising every day. Like I've cut alcohol out to a, a big degree. And it's about, I suppose, managing yourself because everyone's different. Some people might have needed to quit Um, drink some people might not have any problem with it so I think I I sort of came up with a bit of a a rule system for myself outside of work because you need you need you you need to see your family you need to see your friends like 
otherwise you become a bit robotic and the things that you start working for become very different to the things that you are now working for. Like, I think I started work to make lots of money and probably was quite interested in being well-known and, you know, all these things. Whereas now I don't work for any of that. And that's a privileged position, but also one that you must acknowledge yourself that now my greatest goal in the day is to try and be kind and, you know, to try and, to try and help people and try and do a good thing and, and, and be a good mentor. So yeah, challenging times, but I think uh, with a good good team around you, good family around you, and then just like very intentional about what works for you as an individual, I think um, I think you can get through it. Now we have come to the last segment of the podcast, and this is a segment that we call Answer the Internet. And this is where we scour the internet for the questions that the public needs the answers to. The question that we'll put to you today is, what do CEOs do all day? Um, it's a great question because it's, it depends if you're small or big. I think if you're small, they tend to do everything and they tend to be everywhere. But if you're talking about CEOs of, of massive companies, yeah, I mean, they get quite a bad rep in the press, I suppose, but strategic decision-making is a very hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to balance. And I think that what they're meant to do, I'm not saying all of them do this, but what they're meant to do is they're meant to chart courses and, and try and predict the future of where their company is going so that the company can continue to do well, protect its employees, protect its shareholders, and so forth. So decision-making at that level can be incredibly hard. You know, even at our scale, you know, making a decision impacts revenue, team, forecasts, cash, technology, operations, like it influences so much. And so I think that that is the job of a CEO is to, is to protect their company from, you know, negative forces, basically. As to whether big CEOs do that, you know, jury's out. I've met a lot who do, met a lot who who don't. So yeah. We are Business Leader magazine. So our next question is something that we ask all of our guests on our podcast. And that is what makes a great business leader? It's a combination of two things. I think it's being able to articulate a vision and a mission for the future where someone can see themselves being part of that mission. Because being inspired is actually the best feeling in the world. If you're able to buy into a a mission of a company, it's the best feeling in the world because otherwise it is just work. A lot of the time, all work is admin at the end of the day. And so if you're able to articulate that and give someone their place within that mission, I think that's incredibly powerful. And the other thing is I think lots of stuff that you know I try and task my st- myself with and, and try and hold myself to account for, which is like do the things that protect the people outside the work. That's why I always rage against the government because I think that a lot of this stuff should actually be mandated. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be the choice of individual people. But yeah, giving people a mission and a vision and showing them where they fit and then making sure that they protect them from a mental health, physical health, family perspective. I think that, that has to be it. Thanks, Chris. And do you have any final words for the audience? Um, I think if you're going to do it, maybe you are already doing it. But if you're going to do it, I think that I would try and do something that you actually love because truthfully, it is really hard. And I think that you don't, you know, you don't have to do the thing that you love necessarily, but I would just be careful about doing something that isn't particularly a passion of yours. Because I think at the 11th hour, when you're you know, working on a pitch for the client the next day and it's the fifth day of the row, you've missed, you know, birthday parties and important events and all the rest of it. I think to believe in yourself at that moment, you kind of have to love it a little bit. And so I would always, if you're thinking of starting, I wouldn't day one pursue just the money. 
I would pursue something that also does interest you. During the time at Verb, I actually loved it. I loved everything about it. And with Lottie, you know, it's just the same. And so I think that keeps me going. But even me, there were moments where I was like, I don't know if I can keep doing this, you know, and having, you know, having to have a real check. So yeah, try and do something that you're passionate about if you're going to start a business. 